you just take down what you want. Okay, welcome back. Glad that you are here. Feel free to get more snacks, refill on your drinks uh, as we go through tonight. We'll get as far as we can. We may cover all of this. Um, last week we covered the life of Muhammad and Christian beliefs. Next time, which is in two weeks, November 15th, uh, we're going to finish up anything we don't get to tonight. And then we're going to talk about uh, two, two big issues. One is, what, how could someone look at Christianity and, and perhaps level some of the same complaints about Christianity that we look at Islam and, and level? For example, the Crusades often get brought up. How would you defend that, if you can defend it? What would you say about Christianity in light of the Crusades? The other one is, in the Old Testament, there are some pretty violent acts. And how do you read what happened in the Old Testament and accept that, but then look at what Muhammad did or what uh, ISIS is doing and condemn that? Uh, so we're going to try. I, I'm not sure I can do it, but we're going to try to figure out why do we think the Old Testament is different from what is happening in Iraq or with ISIS or with Al-Qaeda. Uh, so that's next time. Some really, really tricky issues about us, not about them. Really, it's about us. So tonight, uh, Islam and the Quran and the teachings of Islam. You've got that first sheet is just vocabulary. I just want to give you words so that when you hear them either in the teaching tonight or when you hear them in the news or you hear them in some conversation you're having, you'll have uh, some context for what the vocabulary is of Islam. So we're just going to go right down the page. If I go too fast, let me know. The first word we actually defined last week, the word Islam means submission. It means submission. Islam is the, the word meaning submission. Number two, the word Muslim is one who submits. Submit to the teachings of his prophet Muhammad. We are the submitters. Number three, Muhammad, the last and greatest prophet of Islam. Now, Muslims probably wouldn't define him that way. They would probably define him simply as the last and greatest prophet. Uh, he is in a long line of prophets, as we're going to see in a little bit, including all of the prophets that we would accept, all of the prophets that we would claim, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jesus. Uh, as we're going to see, Muslim would, would say, yes, all of those are great prophets. All of those are wonderful prophets. We accept them as prophets, but Muhammad is the last and greatest, and therefore he has the final word. He has the final interpretation of everything that came before him. And if you remember last week, his, his life is uh, 570 to 630, 632, somewhere in that range. Uh, A.D., after Jesus is born. So he's five, six hundred years after Jesus is when Muhammad is alive. And number four, the Quran. The culmination of God's revelation to mankind as revealed to Muhammad... It is believed to be the literal word of God, literally meaning the recitation. This is what Muhammad called him. He, he recited these words as he was given them. 
And we mentioned this a little bit last week, but he received these words according to his account in various ways. Sometimes he went into a trance, sometimes he had a, a vision, sometimes he heard noises. But uh, the angel Gabriel came to him and gave him these messages, not all at once, but over a period of time, he would receive these messages, he would recite them, so they are his recitations. Uh, we said last week that Muhammad did not read nor write, and so he did not write any of the recitations down. Someone else either wrote them down, Khadijah, his wife, was one of them, other family members, or people memorized them. As he would give them, they would commit them to memory or they'd take what was written down, they would commit that to memory. That'll be important later on. And number five, Jabril. We would say Gabriel, J-I-B-R-I-L. We would say Gabriel, but this is the pronunciation of Gabriel. Jabril is the angel who revealed the recitations of Muhammad. Uh, so just like we believe Gabriel's a literal angel and he has a part in the story of God, they believe Gabriel gave the messages to Muhammad. Uh, next word is, is probably unfamiliar if you haven't looked into this subject before. The Hadith, H-A-D-I-T-H. I guess I need to see what the blanks are. I do have your page here with me. The Hadith, H-A-D-I-T-H. In Islam, you have the Quran, which are the recitations. And then you have the Hadith, which is kind of the practices of Muhammad and the great prophets and his followers, um, the Hadith is sort of the guidebook, it's sort of the teachings and the practical ways to live uh, for the Muslim. Uh, number seven, the Sunnah contained in the Hadith. These are the actions of Muhammad that are viewed as exemplary. These are the ones that you should follow. Now, in one sense, because he's the last and greatest prophet, that's S-U-N-N-A, number seven, Sunnah, S-U-N-N-A, because he's the last and greatest prophet, then his life is to be exemplified. All right? We look at Jesus and we say, everything about his life should be followed. If you want to know how to live, look at Jesus. Well, Muhammad is that person for uh, Islam. Number eight, the doctrine of abrogation, and I'll spell that, A-B-R-O-G-A-T-I-O-N, A-B-R-O-G-A-T-I-O-N. <clears throat> this is the approach to the Quran that says the later writings of Muhammad supersede the earlier writings. So if there are discrepancies, which there tend to be, if there are discrepancies in the teachings and you're not sure which one to follow... Always go with the later one. And if you were here last week, you should start knowing why that's an issue, why that's important. And I'll come back and explain it in just a minute, the doctrine of abrogation. Uh, the doctrine of deception is another belief in Islam. The idea that it is right to receive the, to deceive the enemies of Allah. This comes out of a story that supposedly Muhammad was being chased and he hid in a cave and a spider formed a web that covered over the back part of the cave. And so his enemies thought, well, that web has been there a really long time. There's no way he went in there. And so from that, he decides that in doing the work of Allah, it's okay to deceive people. 
Um, number 10, Surah, S-U-R-A, Surah. These are the chapters or the divisions of the Quran, and we'll talk about how they're laid out in just a minute. But we would say, turn to Matthew chapter 4, the Surah, they're the different breakdowns within the Quran. There's 114 uh, with an introductory one, I believe. Uh, number 11, Jihad, J-I-H-A-D, Jihad. Its broad meaning is to exert, struggle, or go to war for Allah. To exert, struggle, or go to war for Allah. Now, within Islam, there are two different types of jihad. Uh, the greater jihad is the inner struggle against sin. This is the main one we're to engage in, according to to Islam, The greater jihad is the inner struggle with sin. We, sh we should stop sinning. We, we should try to be better people. We should struggle against our own bad habits and, and our own bad ways. This, in Islam, this is the greater jihad. And the lesser jihad is the physical struggle against the enemies of Allah. Now, we might think, well, from what I see in the news, those, don't, those seem to be reversed. They seem to be more interested in... But it, the, the teaching of Islam is that the greatest struggle is the one on the inside uh, against sin. Caliph, C-A-L-I-P-H. C-A-L-I-P-H. Caliph is the main leader in Islam. We start talking about the caliph, uh, the caliphate, came about after the death of Muhammad. Somebody had to be the recognized leader for Islam. This is where uh, the movement uh, divides and starts to have its own inner struggles. This is where Sunni and Shiite, if you've heard those terms... This is where Sunni and Shiite divide. This is how they become separate groups within Islam. Sunni, this is number 15, S-U-N-N-I. Sunni accept the first four caliphs in order. Meaning, uh, a guy named Abu Bakr who was the father-in-law of Muhammad and a good friend of Muhammad. Sunnis believed, at this time of power trans, uh, uh, moving from Muhammad to the next person, um, Sunnis believed that Abu Bakr was the closest one to Muhammad, and therefore he understood Muhammad's teachings the best. He, he could lead Islam in the way that Muhammad would have wanted. We need to follow Abu Bakr because he's the closest one to uh, Muhammad. So the Sunnis adopted Abu Bakr as the first caliph, and they accept the first four. They're sometimes called the, the perfect caliphs. Uh, being Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, and Ali. We'll come to Ali in just a minute. Most of Muslims in the world are Sunni. <clears throat> it's the largest uh, demographic of, of Islam uh, are the Sunni. I mention here, and actually I just kind of uncovered some of this this week, Osama bin Laden was Sunni. Al-Qaeda are, but they would identify 
as Sunni. Now, let me say, a lot of peaceful people would also identify as Sunni. But these are names that we know, and that question may get asked, well, what was this, and who was this person? So that's where they fit in uh, Islam. Shiite, S-H-I-I-T-E, Shiite, number 16, they rejected Abu Bakr. Uh, Muhammad had a cousin, and uh, they believed that the, the caliph should be a blood relative of Muhammad and not just a good friend or an in-law, father-in-law. Ali was, was actually cousin and son-in-law, but he had a blood relation to Muhammad and the Shiites, what became the Shiites thought, well, we need to stick with a blood relative of Muhammad and not a good friend. And so their allegiance went uh, with Ali. Now, eventually, Ali's recognized as caliph, caliph by both groups. He's the fourth caliph if you're Sunni. He's the first caliph uh, if you're Shiite. Uh, strong populations of Shiite in Iraq and Iran, although Hezbollah is uh, Shiite, as are many peaceful Muslims, but we know those big names. Um, interesting thing about the, the caliphs, the, they get down to the 12th caliph. The 11th caliph is, is murdered at his funeral or the, the events surrounding his death, uh, the, who, the, the, he was still a child who was supposed to become the next caliph, disappears. And among many Islams, there is a belief, much like our believing Jesus is returning, there is a belief that the 12th caliph is eventually going to come back and this is going to signal the reign of uh, Islamic belief uh, all over the world. Um, the, the, in, in the early 1900s and the 1920s, uh, the caliphate ended. And uh, this was, f- again, some of this I was just reading this week. This was one of the things that was such a problem for Osama bin Laden, is that he was he was angry at kind of what had happened to the religion and to the, how the leadership uh, had not continued and carried on. Um, but there is, there's not like, like there's not a caliph. Like we could say, okay, this person now lives in that place and they're now the recognized caliph of the Sunnis and they're the recognized caliph of the Shiites. There isn't this uh, passing of leadership right now. All right, number 17. Unitarian monotheism. Unitarian monotheism. We talked a lot last week with Muhammad about polytheism and monotheism and how he's raised in a culture of polytheism. Through his prayers and meditations, believed that monotheism was the right way to go, and so he introduces monotheism in a polytheistic society. It's not just monotheism, it's Unitarian monotheism. It's one God... One person, one God, which they would disagree with the word person, but just for the sake of comparison, we are, as we talked about last time, we are Trinitarian monotheist. We believe in one God, we just believe He exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Judaism is a monotheistic religion. One God, Father. Uh, so, uh, Islam is Unitarian monotheistic, whereas we are Trinitarian monotheistic, which leads to the problem of number 18. Uh, the unforgivable sin called shirk in Arabic. The unforgivable sin or committing shirk is associating God with partners, essentially polytheism, to say that there is more than one God or that a group uh, are, are God. That would be associating partners with God, that is shirk, to the Muslim, this is the unforgivable sin, and they look at our religion, and specifically the fact that we claim Jesus to be the Son of God and equal to God, and in their mind, we have committed shirk. We have denied monotheistic religion. We have denied Allah, God, and instead, we've associated with God other partners, other persons, and that's unforgivable. Um, all right, number 19. Jinn, J-I-N-N. J-I-N-N. These are mischievous spirits made from fire. We get, we get the word genie from this idea. But all throughout their belief system, and we'll come to some more examples in a minute, all throughout their belief system. Uh, one of the basic beliefs of Islam is angels and demons. In other words, there are these spirits, these mischievous <clears throat> beings, and there are good ones and not good ones, and there are Muslim ones and non-Muslim ones. And so uh, they have this whole belief that you're given one uh, at birth, and so we all have a genie, basically. We all have a jinn that's at work, and maybe it's helping us, and maybe it's not helping us, and potentially at the end of our life, in the afterlife, they're going to be a part of reporting on our deeds, and did we do well or not do well? Uh, so this is a part of uh, Muslim belief system. And then 20, Sharia, a term that you've no doubt heard. Sharia S-H-R-I-A-H, Sharia. This is Islamic law. Now, somebody asked uh, on one of the cards uh, last time, what, what is Sharia law and why, why do they expect us to observe Sharia law and not constitutional law or American law or the law of our country? Uh, it goes back to something I said last time, which is this. For the Muslim, there is not my religion and the country that I live in. There's not like this separation of my life. There's not like, here's what I observe in my religion, but I live in a secular society or I work at this particular job. And so, you know, I, there are things that I have to do for my job. Uh, for the Muslim, it's all their religion. Uh, very much theocratic. And, and, and their position is that my religion is my government. My religion is my, um, uh, my authority. And so, yes, 
where I live, I want the law to match my belief because I don't see, I don't see any uh, dichotomy. I don't see separate parts at all. Everything is religion for the Muslim. Um, so, vocabulary. Any questions on vocabulary before we move on? All right, let's talk a little bit about the Quran. I think this is where I just kind of gave you a spot. If you want to take notes, just whatever you want to take, you can write down. Uh, let's talk about how the Quran came to be. As I mentioned, Muhammad doesn't read or write. He's reciting in this trance or whatever he's going into periodically. People are writing it down. People are committing it to memory. He dies without there being a, a collected record of his recitations. So there's not a volume. Uh, John Smith dies. Uh, as a Mormon, he's, he's got all his stuff like written down and together. Muhammad dies, and that's not the case. Instead, you have his followers who have memorized different parts of his recitation, right? And different reciters, as they were sometimes called, different reciters memorized different portions. Some attempted to memorize the entire Quran, all of his, um, all of his recitations. There wasn't a Quran yet. Um, so, even, even Muhammad would claim that there were multiple versions of every recitation. So you have all of this sort of fragmented information about what he heard, what he said, what he recited. In 633, we're not very far after Muhammad's death. In 633 AD, there's this huge battle... And most of the best reciters die in this battle. So the people who have memorized what he recited, most of them are dead after we're finished with this little war. So there's this crisis within Islam of how do we hang on to our beliefs? How do we hang on to the teachings of the great prophet? How do we pass this down? So... Abu Bakr, the first caliph, uh, at least on the Sunni side, Abu Bakr uh, institutes the first gathering of the recitations. So he gets together the best reciters, uh, any, any uh, things that have been written down, he gathers all of that together, and he has people write down what all of these reciters have memorized. So there's this collection the, the problem was there were arguments over who had the right translation and who had the right recitation and, and, and were we getting it down right. And pretty soon there's like this internal war. The Muslims are fighting Muslims and killing each other because they don't think you have the right recitations and we have the right recitations. So the third caliph, Uthman, commissions a second gathering of the Quranic recitations. What's been memorized, what's been written down, and he takes responsibility not only for collecting those, but for editing, editing those so that they're consistent. And then he goes one step beyond that. After he's gathered and edited the recitations, Uthman then, probably wisely from a human perspective, destroys all the other copies of the recitations. Just burns them, 
destroys them. That way, nobody can prove that his aren't the right ones. Now, let's stop for just a second. If you remember last week, we talked about how we got the Bible, and specifically the New Testament. What did we say about the number of copies of New Testament manuscripts? 25, they even remembers the number. Thank you, Lewis. 20, there's 25,000 fragments or copies of original manuscripts, which gives us, as I said last time, which gives us the ability to compare this one. Oh, this one was a couple hundred years earlier. Is this one still true to that one? So we're able to do critical analysis and textual analysis on the words of Scripture. And honestly, sometimes that makes things challenging. Uh, you'll, you'll read through your Bible, and we can look at some places if you want to. There's, there's a really good one in John. You'll read through your Bible, and you'll come to a passage that says, the earliest manuscripts don't contain this story. Or, uh, you'll be reading along, and it'll go from verse 3 to verse 6. Because for a long time there was a 4 and 5 in there, and then we found earlier and earlier manuscripts, and we realized, no, somebody added 4 and 5. It didn't change the meaning. They were trying to be helpful and kind of smooth out some rough parts. But those two little sentences, they weren't really in the earliest manuscripts. The story, one of the heartbreaking ones for me, if, just, if I'm honest. The woman caught in adultery... If you read that story in John, there's going to be a little note at the top. The earliest manuscripts do not contain this story. Now, that does not mean the story didn't happen. right? The story probably historically took place. It probably took place exactly as we have it in the Bible, but it wasn't in the Gospel of John that the Holy Spirit gave to John. So we would say... Well, that section may be true, and it's a great story, and don't you know, cast the first stone and that whole deal. That's such a great story, but it's, it's not inspired in the same way that the rest of John is, because it wasn't in the original. Somebody added it later. To me, that doesn't detract from the credibility of the Bible. To me, that increases the credibility, because we're willing to say, you know what? We thought for a long time that was in there, and now we figured out it's not, so we're going to be honest. We're not going to, try to, we're not going to burn all the copies that don't have this in there. We're going to say, you know what, we've done some more study, and, and we've found little places where some textual errors were made through the years. Now, here's the thing. A textual variant has never been found that changed anything of substance in the Bible. Ever. No, no great idea of Christian faith or salvation have we ever said, oh, somebody added that whole salvation thing in there. That's not supposed to. Oh, grace, uh, grace and faith and not by works. No, nope, we somebody. Nope. There's nothing of substantive value that has ever been found uh, as a textual variant in the scriptures. But here, as we see the Quran coming together, and, and all I'm doing really is just comparing the two. I'm comparing how we got the Bible to how the Quran came about. And Uthman, the, the third caliph, gathered the reciters 
edited it. I'm sure he was trying to do the best job that he could, but he decided we are not going to fight over this anymore. I am destroying all the other copies, and this is the one true Quran handed down from Muhammad, and everyone should read and believe this one. Um, let's talk about the organization of the Quran. As I mentioned, the, the Quran has 114 chapters or surah. Uh, there, it, the Quran is arranged not in any sort of chronological manner or even in a topical manner. The Quran is arranged uh, strictly from longest chapter to shortest chapter. Again, there's like a, a preface, prayer, preamble sort of chapter. But then... You go from the longest chapter, regardless of the chronology, regardless of the topic, to the shortest chapter. Now, how difficult would that be to understand if our Bible were written that way? Now, what if we didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? What if we didn't have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy? What if we had longest chapter? Psalm 119. Right? Next longest chapter... 1 Samuel 14. Next longest, Revelation 20. Now, I'm making these up. But that's, that's how our Bible would read if it were arranged in the way that the Quran is. So, you, you can't just pick up the Quran and kind of read from beginning to end and get any real sense of uh, uh, progression or history it's all longest to shortest. Topics are kind of all over the place. So a, another reason why the Quran is very difficult, even for Muslims, to read and understand on their own. Uh, each chapter is named for a specific event that took place. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, you, you sort of have two groups of surahs, of chapters. You've got the Meccan surahs, the Meccan recitations, and then you've got the Medina recitations. And we talked about his flee to Medina, and then what happened, then he gets power, and then he comes back to Mecca. Um, the earlier chronology recitations are the Meccan uh, recitations. And if you remember, in Mecca, he was trying to fit in, right? He was isolated. He was trying to build allegiances and find groups that would kind of join with him because people were starting to turn against him because he was promoting monotheism and they were plotting to kill him and they're trying to run him out of town. So he's trying to find allegiances and alliances. So in the early chapters in Mecca, a lot of his recitations are reaching out for support. Not just to people who believe as he believes, but also to Christians and to Jews. He's just trying to find friends, basically, in the early chapters, the Meccan chapters. These chapters often begin with, O ye people. You know, that's his, O ye people. Right, let's come together. Let's, let's worship the one God. Uh, there's 86 of these, and they, they tend to be lofty and spiritual and tolerant. And, and a, a concern for social justice. Now, some of which he probably gathered from being around Jewish people. Remember, he, was, he, he learned the Old Testament stories because he was around some tribes of Jewish people. 
Uh, also, his interactions with Christians, he sort of learned their stories. And as we said last week, he kind of co-opted a lot, uh, a lot of biblical stories for his own, changed them around a little bit, made the ending a little bit different. So here's one. This is the Quran, uh, Surah 2, 62. I think it's in your notes. Those who believe in the Quran and those who follow the Jewish scriptures and the Christians and all who believe in God in the last day and work righteousness shall have their reward with their Lord. On them shall be no fear, nor shall they grieve. So would anybody have expected Muhammad to say that based on what you've seen on television or what you know? Probably, probably not. Because Muhammad's saying, you know what? Christians and Jews, they worship one God. We all kind of believe the same. We don't have to attack them. Don't be mad at them. They're all going to heaven. They don't have to fear. They don't have to fear us. They don't have to fear anything. So this reaching out, inclusive sort of teaching in the Meccan uh, recitations. Here's, here's a, a quote from the Hadith. If anyone harms others, God will harm him. And if anyone shows hostility to others, God will show hostility to him. Play nice, basically, right? Don't hurt anybody. Don't commit violence against anybody. These are the early teachings. Now, the later chapters chronologically, the later chapters are the ones in Medina where he's getting power. And not only is he getting power, but as we said last time, he's getting angrier and angrier at the Jewish tribes that he thinks have been helping his enemies, at the Christians who aren't supporting him, at the polytheists. He's mad at everybody, and he's now got power. So his recitations begin to take on that tone. They're recited in Medina. Uh, they often begin, uh, not, oh, you people, but, oh, ye who believe. Like, those of you who are with me. Those of you who believe what I'm teaching. Uh, there's 28 of those. They tend to be more practical, more community-oriented. In other words, it's us now. It's not reaching out. Harsh, militaristic, endorsing war and repressive measures toward non-Muslim to advance Islam. So as you can tell, from the earlier Meccan recitations to the later Medina recitations, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be, let's get along with everybody, and then you're going to turn around and read, let's kill everybody that disagrees with us. So... This is where the doctrine of abrogation comes in that I mentioned in the vocabulary list. The doctrine of abrogation says, well, whenever there's a conflict, whenever there's something you don't understand, always take the latter recitation over the former. Well, the latter ones are the ones where he's mad at everybody. And he's seeking vengeance on those that he thinks have been working against him. <clears throat> All right, uh, just, what did I give you on? All right, just real quickly, the Hadith, we won't spend a lot of time here. We'll get into the pillars and the beliefs. Uh, the Hadith, the, the people who were around Muhammad, his companions, his Sahabis, uh, they, they gave accounts of what he was like, of what he did, what they did, what they did together. This formed the Hadith, which is sort of the practical teachings of Islam. And I think we'll just leave that for now. 
um, so we can get to the pillars and the beliefs. All right, the five pillars of Islam. You may have known this. You may have learned it in school. You may have learned it in history class. Uh, But here are the five pillars of Islam. Number one is the confession. That's what they call the confession. And the confession is simply... There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. And, and you've probably been told that in order to become a Muslim, all you have to do is say those words. And that's, that's true. You say those words, mean them in your heart. Specifically, you have to say them in Arabic, uh, which again, nobody speaks Arabic. But the, the imam, the, 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 the leader of the, the, um, the temple w- will lead the people who wish to convert In saying this statement, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet, he will lead them in Arabic, and they are then converted. They are then Muslim. That's the confession. It's the first pillar of Islam. Second pillar is daily prayer. Daily prayer, five times a day. Um, uh, Kind of a well-known aspect of Islam is the call to prayer. Uh, and, and you see this in movies, you see this in news reports, uh, you'll, you'll hear reporters talk about, you'll hear it in the background, the, that noise, that sound, that call to prayer is a reminder for uh, Muslims to rise, take out their prayer uh, cloth, to kneel, face Mecca, uh, as best they can determine it, uh, face toward Mecca, and to pray the five prayers of the day, each of them uh, in Arabic, which again, they have memorized the Arabic in order to pray those prayers, and maybe they know what it's saying, but they don't speak Arabic. The fifth pillar of Islam is almsgiving or giving to the poor. You already give a percentage, I think. I think it is uh, like 2% of every possession that you've had for a year or something along those, it's like a formula or whatever. But basically, it's generosity, it's giving to the poor, it's caring for the poor. Uh, certainly something that we would not disagree with, just like we would not disagree with praying. We would not disagree with making a confession of your belief in God. We, we wouldn't express their confession. Uh, but we pray, just like they pray. We give, just like they give. The fourth uh, pillar of Islam is uh, pilgrimage to Mecca. If you are physically able and financially able, it is the duty of all Muslims to participate in Hajj, the, the pilgrimage to Mecca, at least once in their lifetime. All right, so that is the fourth pillar. Uh, and you've, again, you've seen pictures, you've seen video of this taking place. We get reports every year uh, about things that happen during this process, this pilgrimage uh, to Mecca. Uh, and then the fifth pillar is fasting during the month of Ramadan. That is the holy month and fasting during daylight hours of all uh, food and water. And then at nighttime, you can eat again. So for the month of Ramadan... You fast during daylight hours every day, uh, fasting during Ramadan. So those are the five pillars. In other words, those are the five things you have to do to consider yourself a good Muslim. Uh, In addition to the five pillars of Islam, there uh, are six beliefs or six articles. The six articles. Number one, belief in God. 
Allah and the fact that God is one. He's not three. He's not ten. He's not a thousand. There is one God, Allah. And we mentioned, just to cover it again, Allah is just the Arabic name for God. Um, so, again, retracing some steps from last week, but when people say, are Allah and God the same? Well, the word is the same. That's just their word for God. Just like other languages have a word for God, that is the Arabic word for God. And obviously, the, the description of their God doesn't fit the description of our God. Um, it's like if you, if you met somebody next week and they, you, you said, yeah, our, our pastor's Ken Sermons. And they say, I know Ken Sermons. Yeah, like, like 6, 4, 2, 30. I know that's exactly. And you would go, we don't know the same Ken Sermons. Because right? he's not 6, 4, 2, 30. That's kind of the way it is with Christian God and Muslim God. Yeah, we call them the same thing. But when you start describing them, they're not the same. They're not the same. Uh, next article. The belief in angels and demons. Angels and demons. Uh, they believe that one angel is responsible for recording your good deeds and another angel is responsible for recording your bad deeds. So you be the judge as to which one's been the busiest in your life. But you got one for good stuff and one for bad stuff. And it's, it's, it's so, I don't mean to trivialize at all or minimize, but it's sort of like the, the good one on your shoulder and the bad one on your shoulder, and they're kind of always there, and they're trying to help you and guide you, and they're watching you and recording you and tempting you. Um, so th that's the idea of jinn that we talked about earlier. Jinn or genie, these spirits of fire. They believe that you're, we're all assigned one and that some of them are Muslim and there's Christian ones and there's you know, all kinds of different uh, jinn. Uh, number three, belief in the holy books. Belief in the holy books, which we would maybe expect, except we probably wouldn't think holy books is in plural, but the holy books, according to Islam, are the law of Moses, which would be our Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, um, the Psalms of David, exact same ones, basically, I'll clarify that in just a minute, but Psalms of David, the Injil, or the Gospels, that's what they would call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, those are holy books. And then the Quran, but their belief is that the Quran is the only perfect uh, prophetic writing now. And we'll come back to this in a minute, but their belief about the Law of Moses, the Psalms of David, the Gospels, and all of the Bible is that it all one time taught Islam. Moses was a Muslim. David was a Muslim. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were Muslims. Jesus was a Muslim. All of the Bible at one time taught Islam and it was corrupted. And that's why 550, 600 years after Jesus, Muhammad had to come and straighten out how we had messed up the Bible and taken the Islam out of the Bible. Because the Bible originally taught Islam. And so Muhammad comes as the, the last and greatest prophet to put things right again. Uh, they believe in the prophets of God. Many of the same prophets we believe in. 
as I, as I mentioned earlier. Jesus was a pro- great prophet. Uh, belief in the day of judgment. They believe that every person will be raised in the end to stand for judgment. Exactly what we believe. Okay, we believe at the end of time, everyone faces, uh, it will stand before God. Okay, same thing. Uh, they also have the belief in the decree of God. Now, this is a little bit different from our beliefs. Uh, they believe so much in the will of Allah that essentially they believe in fatalism. Uh, they believe if Allah wills it, then it's going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. Just, that's just the way it's going to happen. Which is beyond even... Uh, you know, we debate the issue of predestination or God's sovereignty and how does that work. Beyond all of that, their belief really is toward fatalism, toward in the end, Allah decides and He's always right and it's going to be the way Allah decides. So the decree of God is very important to them. Um. So let's talk about comparing Christian positions and doctrines and Muslim. Any? Do we need to stop here for anything? Quick yeah. Talk about the caliphate. Yes. Is the primary difference between them just the uncle, or excuse me, father-in-law, or the nephew, or was one more militant? Um, it, it, from that initial separation. There began to be more, even in some of the beliefs, there'll be slightly, you know, like we have different denominations and, and so they take different approaches to different things. Yes, there's more difference than just that. I'm not qualified to speak on exactly what they are. Trevor, do you got anything to add to that? Not really. I mean, it's just Yeah, yeah. And is, if one side is more militaristic than the other, I'm... I'm not sure if it started out that way. I would say probably not today, especially the examples that I gave you on both sides. You know, you got Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda on one side and Hezbollah on the other side. You know, take your pick, <laughs> you know. I mean, there's militant violence either way you go at this point. Did it start out that way? That's a good question. I'm not sure. Yep. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. They would, they would not believe in a concept of free will the way that we believe in it. We, they believe we are humanly responsible for what we do. But the outcome, and, and we'll see this in just a minute, even the afterlife, there's really only one way to ensure that you make it to paradise. Only one way. So, yes, yes, free will is not a part of their understanding because they believe in the will of Allah. All right, I mentioned this already, but let's kind of work through it for note's sake. What do they believe about the Bible? Well, they believe the Bible originally taught Islam, but it has been corrupted. They believe the Bible originally taught Islam, but it has been corrupted. Corrupted. Now, one of the problems with that, in my opinion, is uh, we said that, especially with the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have manuscripts from the turn of the century. You know, we, we have manuscripts 
from a couple hundred years before Jesus was ever around. So it's safe to say the Old Testament that Jesus read didn't teach Islam because we, we have manuscripts from uh, writings before Jesus even came to earth. This is what the Old Testament was saying. Uh, and yet, the, a Muslim would still hold to the, the Bible taught Islam, the prophets taught Islam, they were all Muslim, and throughout history, it got corrupted, and Muhammad came to make it right. Uh, Muslims believe they're descendants of Abraham through Ishmael. As a matter of fact, in their story, Ishmael is in the place of Isaac, and so that's them, and Isaac is the good guy, right? And, and they're, not I, Ishmael is the good guy. And that's leading to them and their place under Abraham. Again, they believe in the prophets. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, yes. All of those are fathers of Islam in their mind. Uh, They believe that Islam completes the Bible in the same way the New Testament completes the Old Testament. This is just the last and final and greatest testament that came from the last and greatest prophet, Muhammad. Uh, what do they believe about Allah, about God? In, a spe- in specifically ways that are different from our concept of, of God. Muslims believe that God is unknowable. Unknowable. You cannot know God. Muslims do not have an idea of a personal God. They do not think of God as Father They do not think of God as someone who would come to them or even who would speak to them. He is distant. He is other than. Uh, They don't believe that Allah makes promises. He makes no promises. He makes no guarantees. They believe that Allah does not reveal himself. Only his will. He doesn't reveal himself. He doesn't reveal what he's like. He just reveals his will, the will of Allah, this fatalism idea. You can know what he wants, the five pillars, the six articles. This is the will of Allah that he wants for you, but you can't know him. They 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 would never sing, he's a good, good father. They don't think of that personal relationship with God. Or, or that, that, that they can know his characteristics. Uh, the, the next one. Uh, they believe that Allah is capricious. In other words, he can change at any time. One statement. He can turn the truth into a lie and a lie into the truth. But it's the will of Allah, so it's right. He can say one thing today, and if Allah decides that something else is what should be said, the complete opposite the next day, then today it's the complete opposite. Because the will of Allah is always right. So they don't believe in a God that they can know what He will do, what His plan is, what His character is like. And in a a similar way, they believe that He is arbitrary. could change his mind at any minute for any reason. They believe in a God that is harsh and wrathful, but they believe also that he's going to be merciful. 
which is, is not a huge stretch from our beliefs about God. We believe our God has justice and, and anger on the one hand and love and mercy on the other. Uh, many of them believe he's neither physical or spiritual. He's just other than. And I can respect that. I mean, we believe our God is unlike anything we've ever seen or met. Uh, so we believe he's unique in that sense. The difference is we believe our God revealed himself to us. We believe that our God spoke into human history. And then in Jesus, our God came into human history. He came near to us. Muslims would, would never consider that God would come near to us. He's too different from us. Uh, Jesus, and looks like we're going to have to hold off on a little bit of this. We'll cover just a couple of, uh, couple of more and then we'll finish this up next time. They believe that Jesus was one of uh, the many prophets, along with Moses and David and John and Paul. He's one of them. A really, really unique one. They do elevate Jesus in what they believe about him. Uh, for example, they believe he was born of a virgin. They do not believe that about Muhammad. It's one of the interesting things to talk about with a Muslim is, so Jesus was born of a virgin, but Muhammad wasn't, but Muhammad's greater. Uh, they believe that Jesus performed miracles. They're not going to argue with you about the miracles in the Gospels. And they believe he was a great prophet. Um, they believe that he did not atone for our sins. Atone, A-T-O-N-E. They don't believe in this substitutionary atonement where Jesus came and died for us. They believe he was a good prophet. They believed he lived and died. But they don't believe that has anything to do with our salvation or our forgiveness at all. He's a good prophet. We should learn from him. Perhaps we should emulate him. But he's not Savior. They do believe that Jesus was sinless, ironically. Which is, which is something the vast majority of Muslims do not believe about Muhammad. They do not believe Muhammad was perfect in everything that he did. They do believe that Jesus was sinless. Another difference. Uh, they do not believe Jesus died on the cross. And they have various explanations to kind of sidestep this and, and get around this. Uh, Probably the most common is they believe that because he was a great prophet, at some point in the crucifixion, God miraculously substituted somebody else in Jesus' place. So people thought Jesus died, but God had rescued the prophet from crucifixion and had substituted somebody else. The most common belief uh, in, in Islam is that God substituted Judas, right? which is a that's a great story. We want Judas to get what's coming to him. Um, and that's sort of their position because they don't believe Jesus died for our sins. They believe he was a great prophet. They, they can't believe that he died in that way, that God would allow a prophet to die in that way. And so they believe that uh, Judas or someone else was substituted for Jesus when he died and uh, did not die for us. All right, it is 630 and we're going to stop right there. Uh, this is my friend Trevor. Uh, Trevor and his wife Julie have been coming to our church. And uh, Trevor has worked and, and interacted 
in some uh, Islam, uh, Islam, Muslim cultures. And uh, Trevor, anything you want to add or clarify or correct about anything tonight? Exactly. Yes. And I said, well, then how do you know that you're going to go to heaven? Well, inshallah, that God allows. God allows. Then why do all that stuff? Well, because um, it's what we're supposed to do. But it doesn't really guarantee you anything. No. Right. We're just going to do it. And so that circular reasoning of, of inshallah um, is, that's the, the number one thing that you hear. Yeah. And if you look at the section on afterlife, and I, we'll cover that next week, but you, you'll see a note there. In the end, the will of Allah decides a person's eternal destiny. I mean, they can do the five pillars. They can do the six articles. Uh, they can pray every day five times. They can do Hajj. They can go to Mecca on the pilgrimage. They can fast at Ramadan. In the end, their belief is if you get to heaven and Allah decides you can't come in, then the will of Allah be done. So there is no confidence. There is no confidence in your eternal destiny whatsoever uh, if you are a Muslim because Allah could change his mind about you no matter what you've done with one small exception. And we'll talk about that next week. <laughs> on the vocabulary? On the vocabulary? The doctrine of deception. All right, I know that was a pile of stuff. We just kind of had to plow through. Uh, Cheryl? Inshallah. 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 And, as, and we'll talk about this next week, but there is also the chance that you could go through a period of punishment. You could experience the fire, and then Allah could bring you out. And so you're like, you could pay for all your bad stuff, and, and then you could get in. So, Trevor. Interestingly enough, there is an opportunity for women to become clean, and that is when they give birth to a child. Um, and so that kind of evens the scales again. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting. Yeah. All right. We'll tackle the rest of the beliefs and talk about um, uh, afterlife and maybe even how to engage Muslims if you got a neighbor or somebody you work with. And, and the reality is most of the people we're going to encounter are peaceful, looking to have a good life, want to educate their kids and for the kids to be safe. And uh, there are neighbors and citizens here in our community. And, and, you know, how do we develop a relationship and dialogue with them and then we're going to try to handle those trickier issues about our own uh, faith's history. Uh, because we, you're going to get asked. You're going to, well, didn't you do the same thing in the Crusades?